Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 168, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, teachers around the country continue to amaze as they juggle virtual and in-person learning. In an update, did a tropical storm force school districts to close down for bad weather, or did they just switch to virtual learning? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, six shifts you can make for teaching math remotely. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is September 20th, 2020. Lots of 20s there. And I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing this week? Another good week has gone by. Tough as ever, but hey, we're surviving. Yeah, no doubt. And as usual, I like to kind of kick off our shows, at least this time, uh, with the uh, latest on the numbers for the state of Mississippi. We're kind of ahead of much of the country. New York, I I think, is still um, kind of teetering on whether or not they're going to be headed back to school. Um, We've been at Mm -hmm. this for, I think, about five, maybe five plus weeks in some areas. And we now have four full weeks of data from the Mississippi Health Department and who is contracting and how many cases of uh, COVID-19 we're seeing. And I'm going to break it down. So. Yeah, it, it's it's uh, pretty interesting. And I, I was able to kind of just quickly, I'm not a statistician by any means, don't claim to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the teachers that I've looked at over the past four weeks, on average, we are now averaging 128 COVID-confirmed cases of teachers. And on the student side, we're wow. averaging 287 um, cases a week. Um, so that brings our totals for this year of 725 teachers that have contracted it in the state of Mississippi and 1,329 students. So then I was like, all right, well, what percentage of teachers have now contracted COVID-19 in the state of, state of Mississippi? Quick Google search says there's about 32,000 teachers, and we know that 725 of them have contracted COVID-19. That is 2.26% in about... Again, we're working off of four weeks of data, even though we've been in right. school for about five weeks. So uh, at this rate, uh, that's that seems to be about it. A little over 2% every month or so. Which we'll isn't be necessarily it. bad, but you have to look at it um, from the at-home perspective. So those that are experiencing it, it's something, you know? Oh, no um, doubt. But when you think about it by the state, that's, that's significantly low. Um, and we're talking about four weeks of data. However, we're only talking about many schools that started after the seventh. Yeah, it's true. That's a good point. And and so really only the last two. Now, logically, though, since more schools have come online, you would think the past, say, two weeks of data would have a higher spike in cases. And we mm-hmm. did see that a little bit on the student side. Week three, there was 326 students where normally those numbers were in the 200s. But on mm-hmm. the teacher side, the past two weeks of data have been lower. It was 135, 138, 124, then 115. So, um, I mean, I guess, again, that's somewhat good news uh, on, on, right. the, on the downside. Um, as far as I know, 
two teachers in Mississippi have um, died of COVID-19. Oh, two. There may be okay, more. I only thought there was one. Well, uh, we're, I'm counting the one from the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and then we had the one. Okay, and then a few months ago, we had a coach. The one okay, over okay, the okay, summer, okay, okay. yeah, with the coach. Um, so, yeah, I, we're on the same page there. So so that's okay. uh, that's what we're dealing with. But, of course, death is a lagging indicator. And if we know that 2.26 of the teachers uh, in the state have it, uh, we just kind of need to continue to watch these statistics. But how are yes. things going in in your classroom, um, I've been hearing some rumblings, and you can tell me if this is something you're hearing about uh, learning management systems. Are, are all schools basically using Canvas? Are there other options out there? There are other options. I mean, obviously, before the pandemic even hit, many schools were utilizing the Google Suite, Google Classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they they kind of did it on their own terms, what worked for them, depending on the grade level and the content area. But immediately in late spring, Um, a shift had to happen where many school districts decided to um, identify a single learning management system for consistency. Um, For example, Canvas. And our district is using Canvas and many districts around us are using Canvas. One of the things that I've um, picked up, not just from my team, but remember we've been in now a total of four weeks, but in the beginning, it was very stressful. It was completely different from Google Classroom. A lot of components that they had to learn on a curve And at the same time, the students and parents were, you know, struggling with it as well. Now that we see a lot of other districts have started after the Labor Day holiday, um, there are some groups on social media and some blog groups and teachers are frustrated. Um, Canvas has uh, just a lot of components that really it will take time and practice to really master. And then I'll I'll really tickle you with this. About two weeks ago, we had a day where Canvas just flat out had to fall apart. And uh, we couldn't figure out all day long what was going on. And parents were calling the school. Um, I don't know what anybody else may have gone through, but we thought there was something on our end that we were doing wrong. And then later that evening, we all like to log into the little group to just to talk with teachers across the nation to see what they're learning, what they're experiencing. And it was actually a Canvas um, issue issue and not on us, but we're doing the absolute best that we can. One of the things that we picked up from other districts is providing some videos for parents. And so I have some rock stars in my building who have taken the time to create videos from from as simple steps as in how you log in, because it's different. Like we have a single sign on for our district. Our technology um, department has a single sign-on for everything that we do, whereas some districts, the students have to download the learning management app. So creating a video and helping parents understand that what your, maybe your nieces or nephews are doing in the neighboring county, um, you enter it differently for our district. And then just videos helping to explain to parents, because when you log into any type of management system, even if you go back to um, Google Classroom. There's information wrapped all around the screen and one click on the wrong thing and you've lost your place and you have no idea how to get back. So Mm. we're trying to help our parents. And of course, it takes extra effort from the leadership team to provide support and comfort um, to teachers because your young whippersnappers, they're jumping in there and they're figuring it out and you know they're, they're not complaining as much. But your veteran teachers who are, you know, maybe not as tech savvy, they had the basics um, before the pandemic hit, they're under the most stress. Yeah. And that's that's kind of what's a shame is because I'm sure there's some phenomenal teachers out there. I mean, Absolutely. You know, with with 20 plus years experience and are just, you know, masters at their job. And suddenly it's like, 
oh, you have to do your job this way. You have to use this software that just really isn't your thing. And um, it, I don't want to say it sidelines those teachers because I'm sure they're going to figure it out, but it certainly slows down all those skills that they have. It is somewhat of a sideline, though, because when you know your content, and you can deliver instruction and engage children and get the best learning outcomes for increasing student growth and mastery. I mean, everybody wants to go in your classroom and observe you and improve their skills. But now that component of your practice is hindered by by tech, you mm, know? Yeah. And so those are the teachers that I feel for. And I just try to keep them encouraged. I mean, it's the little things, um, putting chocolate out at the time clock, putting notes on their doors. I mean, just anything that you can do just to try to keep them keep them encouraged and even taking pictures or recording them when they have no idea when you're looking and then sending it and saying, look at this, you're awesome, you're getting it. Because what I have to remind them is none of us have taught and none of us have led in a pandemic. Right. And so as principal, I tell them, you're actually smarter than me right now. I mean, I haven't taught using a learning management system. And even though I took the modules, I took the training that they, you know, participated in, and I am checking their uh, their platforms to make sure le- lessons are in. It's a little bit different than when you used to read their lesson plans on paper or even online to identify what objectives and what they're going to do this week to teach students. Now I have to take a look at that and jump into their canvas and make sure that it is laid out according to our um, board policy. So it's a little bit different than actually utilizing the components to teach students. And so I use that as a way to say, hey, I think you're a rock star because you're doing something that I have not mastered. Yeah, and I don't I don't know what you were talking about the glitch that they had with Canvas. I don't necessarily know what their problem was, but I do know a little bit about how software companies work and in terms of scalability. And yes. um, what probably happened was they were overloaded. And the way these companies like free up the, I guess you can call it the data um, to be able to distribute to so many schools at once is they're all, mm-hmm. they're all working with like an Amazon cloud service, which essentially is they're, they're buying and they're leasing computer power um, offsite. And when demand increases for their software, they have to quickly, engineers on the backside have to quickly say, hey, we need more. We need to buy more. And it's so expensive. They aren't oh. just like free willingly, you know, buying a bunch and saying this. They have to try to guess like this is the type of demand we're expecting. And this is how many servers we need to spin up with Amazon um, in order to handle that. And then sometimes they get it wrong. And what ends up happening is they don't have enough servers purchased. So then they have to quickly spin those back up. And um, and then when they feel like demand's coming down, they need to spin them back down because it is so expensive. So I would, my guess is it was probably something like that. It was more demand than they anticipated and they had to quickly spin up more servers. And, and that's try an to interesting approach. Online. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. And I mean, I guess if you're a, a teacher or an educator of any type and you know that you're having a problem at your school with a software like that, the best thing you can really do is like open up a ticket, you know, go to the website of Canvas or whoever and just say, hey, is this a global problem or is this a problem that we have with us only. And and if they respond, you know, yeah, this is a global problem. We're working on it. You know, there's really nothing you can do, but you just need to give it some time and it should yeah. be back up and running. Um, well, we have a pretty good tech department and we have an awesome district instructional technologist. And so we contact him a lot for everything. And um, he quickly responds and gives us an idea. He also has a good turnaround with um, when he sees a component of the learning management system or just a skill that we're missing to make something easier, he'll quickly put together a video step-by-step module and drop it in there for everyone to be able to access 
And what I like about that is, um, you know, we can watch it over and over, hit pause, work on a piece of our lesson, hit play on his video. And, you know, he does a good job of taking care of us. But I just know that teachers all across this country are doing their absolute best. No and I, I just have to keep shouting them out because this is um, unprecedented and extremely different. And instead of shutting down and not doing our jobs, they're, they're really just doing their absolute best. Yes, no doubt. And um, gosh, did you happen to catch the video on Twitter of the teacher who she looked like she was talking to kindergartners or first graders and she's like holding up the little mute microphone. Did you see this video this week? No, tell me about it. It's incredible. And, and I will play some sound of it. The number four. Oh, I see Brynn is holding up two. I mean, I could never do her job. And, and I guess what I'm getting at is she's speaking to the, you, she set her phone up so you can see her talking to her computer. And she's talking to these students and she's holding up this like little like microphone that she's like created on a stick to let mm-hmm. students know that unmute your microphone. Grayson, go ahead and turn your microphone on for me. What kind of picture do we see? Hmm. Can you get your microphone on so we can hear ya? Yeah, what's a picture that you see, Grayson? For some reason, it wasn't working. Oh, but you have it working now? It sounds like I can hear you. Yeah. So Uh, what's a picture that you see? I see a classic kid. When you watch this teacher in action, I don't think... I mean, I know I'm speaking to the choir here, right? But I mean, I think a lot of the country doesn't realize how challenging this is and how amazing teachers are responding in this virtual learning circumstance. After you began talking about it, I realized which video you were talking about. Okay, She's sitting at her desk and there's a lot of hand motions going on. Yep. That video went viral really fast. Right. Oh, I do want to follow up on... Um, kind of at the end of the last show, we, we were mentioning that we were headed into a situation where we have what was likely going to be a hurricane headed towards the mm-hmm. uh, Gulf Coast. And at the time, we thought it was coming more towards us here in, I guess you would say, the New Orleans, uh, South Mississippi area. Turns out that the hurricane hit more Mo- Mobile and Pensacola, Florida, just to our east. Um, but it was over the weekend and schools started canceling. And I was curious to see how schools would react um, and if they would try to just switch virtual with their cancellations or mm-hmm. if and not call it a weather day or if they would just call it a weather day. And from what I saw, and I, I can't, I'm not 100% sure on this, but it looks like most of the coast schools, the Mississippi coast schools, just took a weather day. And it probably had to do with a lot what you said. You were talking about like, well, they got to worry about power outages and so forth. Yes. However, um, the school that our kids attend, which is a little further inland, we're about an hour inland, um, they canceled for two days. What was it? Tuesday and Wednesday, right? Yes. And they, I later saw on Facebook, Good. said... They were not weather days. Like they did virtual learning on those days. And so Well, they took a little a little negative feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, because as the storm shifted, the district did not reverse its decision to be closed on Wednesday. Right. We just had drizzle with, here for the most part, like light rain. Right, right. And thank goodness for that. And their purpose of maintaining their point for having a virtual learning day for all of our listeners, they recently distributed 
um, Chromebooks to students. Yes, one to one. So you right. have your device. You already had your lessons. They informed you on Monday evening that they were going to be virtual days. You need to log in and, and continue to do your schoolwork. And my son's a virtual learner. And I checked in with him and he said, absolutely. She was right there on time, mama. Okay. And, you know, he wasn't happy. He wanted to sleep all day, but he knew that he had to log in. And so I guess maybe in their minds, um, you know, you should have took our kids back to school. But um, I have to say that I'm proud of them that they equipped everybody for virtual learning because here's the thing. The whole purpose behind the funding being issued to schools was to be able to provide distance learning to your students. And you had to prove that in your restart and reopening plan and as well as how you were going to utilize the funds um, from the pandemic situation. And so say our numbers weren't really dropping like we see somewhat of a drop in our state. If we suddenly saw a surge in our nation and we had to quickly shut down schools again like we did back in March, mm-hmm. you're now equipped. So this is not like in March where you know a lot of school districts had to scramble and put packets together and then figure out how to get them to the families. You know, those districts who have the technology and have them distributed, you're equipped now. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, I gave my son my older MacBook, but it's still a really good MacBook. And um, he pulls out his new Chromebook. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, oh, man, they gave him to us. Um, and right. he said he likes it because he said everything's already there. And I'm assuming right. he's talking about you know, the Google suite, the or apps, the, yeah, the apps, everything. And so it was already, I don't know who set all those things up, but kudos to those people. And um, yeah, he, he was really actually enjoying the new device and, and is putting it to use. Mm-hmm. And my son chose not to get a Chromebook and um, hey, that was his decision. But like I said, I was just grateful when they sent the message out saying, here is the document to fill out to get your Chromebook. And these are the days we're going to distribute. And I said, wow, they moved really quickly. Now, I think they had some material um, in-house already. And, you know, for instance, in my school, we haven't been able to do that yet. We've placed orders for Chromebooks multiple times. And because the inventory is just not there, we're still waiting. And But I'm looking forward to the day where we can um, distribute them for our students and ensure that they're able to do their assignments. But even with that, Got to make sure that they have access, you know, connectivity access. Mm-hmm. Right, of course. And and I did see some good news this week. T-Mobile was doing so, a big project on pushing stuff out, but I just don't know if it's enough. I mean, for just private companies to say, I, I wish somebody could just flip a switch and say, here's free internet for everybody. Um, I don't know, yeah. you know, the logistics of pulling that off. I did see some good news um, also out of our kids' school district. It says the USDA has provided emergency funding for schools to provide free breakfast and lunch meals until December 31st, uh, 2020. 20. And so they're now offering free breakfast and lunch through the district, district wide, like no application needed for this first half of the school year, which I think yeah. is great. I mean, I wish it was yeah. like that all the time. Um, mm-hmm. And hopefully, I don't know how hard if it takes like a federal programs coordinator, like, you know, flipping a switch or filling out forms in order to get those funds. Yeah, there's definitely some paperwork for it, but it's not hard to do at all. Yeah. Our district is doing it as well. Good, 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 good. So I, I love to see that because um, like we, we've talked about on the show in the past, I mean, a lot of times I think there's kids out there, especially as they get older, um, they just, their parents or they don't fill out the paperwork to apply for those free meals and they should be getting those free meals, you know? And so yes. this kind of removes that obstacle. So I think that's all good. I agree. Are you uh, ready for today's bright idea? I'm excited about it. 
Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to give us a few shifts math teachers can use when educating virtually. Adam Lavalley is an economics teacher in Pennsylvania and a learning design coach for Global Online Academy. Adam, welcome to Class Dismissed. Thanks. Really excited to be here and share some ideas um, that I've done myself in the classroom and I've helped other teachers work with. And I think it's a nice uh, starting point for teachers that might be looking at a big picture. How do I move this class that I've done for a long time in person? How do I shift that um, into an online mode? And um, I have a couple of pieces that are you know, good places to start. Well, um, and that's absolutely what we're looking for here. Um, before we do that, let's just, let me ask you, I mean, how are things going for you? You're up in the Northeast, you're in Pennsylvania. I think you said uh, you're outside of Philadelphia. And uh, tell me, like, what's y'all's plan? Are, are you going to be in person? Have you started class yet? So we began our school year virtually, and we've been about three weeks now of uh, just online learning, but we are now transitioning to in-person. So we are pre-K through 12 school and pre-K through, I think, third grade is going to come back next week with some seniors who are going to help uh, lead us and lead our community. And then we'll bring back freshmen, uh, sophomores, juniors, and stagger that so that in a couple of weeks, we'll have our entire population back in person. Uh, and so we're looking forward to sort of merging some of the pieces that we've began online and what that's going to look like merging that into our face-to-face classrooms um, in the next few weeks. And, you know, I guess educators around the country, they have to be ready for anything. And many schools like where we are here in the South, um, that while there's a lot of that traditional face-to-face learning taking place, there's also a lot of students um, who have opted out and decided they're going to continue virtual learning. So teachers are having to kind of balance both that in-person and that virtual uh, learning aspect. And then I know there's other parts of the country that are going to stay virtual. And then we we don't know what's going to happen this fall. Like we could easily find ourselves having to quickly switch back to virtual only. So when I I was kind of reading through your uh, checklist, if you will, of kind of ideas for really it focuses on math educators. Could this be applied to to other subjects as well? Or is this math specific that we're about to jump into? No, this is um, I think any teacher will find um, a sense of their curriculum, their course uh, in these ideas. And I just really wanted to focus on math education. I taught uh, for my first 15 years of my career. Uh, just in a math classroom, and I've done many of these pieces in different um, in different contexts. And I've worked with um, in my work with Global Online Academy a lot of math teachers who were just not sure how to start. They were looking for models or examples, and they were struggling to find some. Um, and so I tried to put together six ideas. Um, as, and like you mentioned, it's a checklist. I'm a big uh, fan of Atul Gawande's uh, checklist manifesto, and just sort of a way that says like. All right, where should I start? How do I get unstuck? What's what's my first step um, in converting a class? Because like you mentioned, no matter where we are um, in our schools, in our districts, um, of what our classrooms are going to look like, being able to teach in an online setting is a really important skill that I think will help teachers, whether it's immediately uh, or you know in the next months or even years, and hopefully provide great learning opportunities for students. And before we jump into the checklist, we, we should also mention that you, you start off your article, which can be found on uh, Global Online Academy. I'll link to it in the show notes. But um, you say that there, there's no one size fits all. Why was it important for, the, for you to add that disclaimer? So I really believe that teachers know their schools the best. They know their classrooms the best. They know their departments. They know their students. They know themselves. And uh, to say here is the 
only solution. Uh, wouldn't be honoring the experiences of each individual teacher, of each individual classroom, school, district, um, and each individual student. And so I think it's really important to have strategies, but to know that those strategies have uh, ways to, for lack of a better term, zig and zag for what's going to work for that particular you know, classroom. And so this isn't to say um, that here's these six things you need to do. And once you do these six things, you're all set. Um, instead, it's really meant to be a starting place uh, to really get the ball rolling so that uh, teachers can personalize to, again, their school, their classroom, uh, and for their students. Well, well, let's jump right into it. Uh, first up, you talk about content and identifying the essentials. Elaborate on that for me. So I really like to think of content in uh, the in a mind frame of concentric circles. So imagine circles within circles and the most in, inner circle is what students master or what students retain, what students bring to the next class or uh, to the next class, the next course. A ring outside of that would be what students maybe understand in the moment. A ring further outside might be what you actually teach. A ring even further outside is something that a teacher hopes to teach or hopes to have in their curriculum. And I think by manipulating the size of those concentric circles, you're hopefully able to make the most inner circle what students retain uh, larger. And so with that, I recommend that teachers think about for their classes, what are, what's the content that's the most fundamental? I use the example in, um, in Algebra 2 that I want functions to be the most uh, central theme for my course. So I want to focus my time, whether that's synchronous time when everyone's together, asynchronous time when students are working on their own time. Uh, I want to focus that time on the topics and ideas and essentially content that I want students to master. There's you know, as we move down that list, there's some other pieces that I really need as, and I use Algebra 2 as an example, I really need my students to be exposed to. They do not need to master and can't master an idea like logarithms in Algebra 2 in a month. But they do need to be exposed to that so that once they move on to pre-calculus, once they move on to calculus or any other course, math course beyond um, Algebra 2, that they have uh, you know, some exposure and they've done some practice and work with that. There are other components as you do some, what I sometimes call is re-chunking the content to figure out are there different ways for, uh, for us to focus time. Are there some pieces that students just need to see or observe? This will resonate with math teachers um, and uh, because I think most Algebra 2 teachers show students how to derive the quadratic equation and it doesn't just show up out of nowhere. Uh, but it actually is, can be derived. I want students to see that, but they don't need to do it on their own. They don't need to write down the proof for that. That's something that I can um, let students watch on their own time. I don't have to spend you know, a major component of our time together. And then the last piece, if I want to focus on certain pieces, I have to think about what in my content do I need to eliminate? And uh, that's where it can be a little bit difficult if you work in a silo, right? And I, I recommend communicating with if you're an Algebra 2 teacher, what is the, uh, what's something that you want your students to focus on in pre-calculus in the next course? Or if I move this to an English curriculum, if in sophomore year, what's something that may be eliminated um, that needs to be revisited um, as a, you know, in the junior year English course or whatnot? So that really has to be a collaborative piece. It really shouldn't be done um, in a silo because that's what's going to be 
um, central to like to your department and how the department moves forward and the students like four year experience and not just their their one year experience in your classroom. Okay, so that's content. Yeah. Next up, and you kind of yeah. mentioned this is d- delivery, and you and you have focus on the asynchronous, and and, and I know you mentioned that in that last section. Definitely. So, um, really thinking about the delivery of content, and I recommend thinking about how you're going to use asynchronous time to complement what you do in synchronous fashion. So obviously every course is going to be a little bit different. And if you want to substitute asynchronous with um, students working at home or working online, that's fine. Uh, But I want to use that time to make our time together important and valuable. So I recommend that uh, teachers think about how they're going to use asynchronous time to complement synchronous time and times that we have together. And every course is going to be a little bit different in terms of how much time students are, students and teachers are together and how much time is on their own, whether this is a completely asynchronous course or a course where you just meet um, only in person. But use the time when students are working on their own to um, make sure that our time together is valuable. So the two ways I see this in a humanities class, I'm obviously asking students to do their reading outside of class and then also to start their pro- uh, responses to certain uh, prompts for a discussion, say, on their own time so that they're ready to go when we meet face-to-face. They're ready to have conversations. They're not confronting a question for the first time, but they've used use that time to think and to think deeply. And we don't end up with just the first student to raise their hand, but we end up hearing from students that have had some time to think through. So that's utilizing asynchronous time to complement synchronous time. And then I also use examples of uh, increasing the use of videos. And I have a couple of examples from uh, teachers that I've worked with uh, this summer and how they've curated great content, uh, whether it's creating some of their own content or creating content uh, for students to use on their own time that then helps them come in and ask meaningful uh, questions and work through meaningful problems face-to-face. So that's really the second piece. And I know you, you've you practiced a lot of this already, having to have been virtual somewhat um, in the past several months. I mean, how much time do you allow for the students, I guess, to have back and forth with you? How much time do you open the floor for questions in a live setting? So I have, uh, so I, every class that we are together has a bit of a different format. But traditionally, if I have 45 minutes, I'm thinking of three 10 to 12 minute chunks of uh, whether it's me doing a little bit of content, students working through and sharing some problems. Uh, so in all in both of those uh, transitions and all those transitions, I'm asking students uh, if they have questions, comments, alternative points of view. And we might even have um, opportunities that are just open, essentially the equivalent of office hours. That might even be during our class time where students have uh, some tasks that they need to do, but I'm also available. Um, and and I, you know, I know a handful of teachers have used uh, station rotation models in uh, online formats, and one of the stations is teacher time. And I've really found that when students are in smaller groups uh, working synchronously, working at the same time, it's much more conducive to asking questions as opposed to a class of 15, 20, 25 all in one place, uh, thinking about even Zoom etiquette and how in a face-to-face classroom, a student would raise their hand and you might finish your thought and then go to them. But if a student starts talking, uh, their face might light up on everybody's Zoom screens and with a yellow square around them and all of a sudden they're on the spot. 
um, even though they might just have a quick clarifying question. So that actually gets to one of the other um, points of really being intentional and designing for where and when those interactions take place. Whenever I'm in a math class as a student, I would, you know, they, we would have, have a discussion about what we're learning. We, we'd work through some examples. And then there would be what I would call downtime, quiet time, where, where you have to work through a couple of problems. So you can kind of see, like, am I retaining this? Am I understanding this? And I guess it's weird when you're in a virtual format. You probably feel like you need to feel, fill the dead air at all times. But did you ever find yourself where everyone's just working and there's really no talking going on for a few minutes? Does that happen? For sure. And um, I've even gone as quote unquote, low tech as write it on your paper and sh- show the paper up to your uh, camera, right, of, of uh, trying to design for ways to, uh, to allow students to show their work. Because when we're in a traditional classroom, using the model that you described, where there's students doing some work um, on their own, there are so many organic interactions that happen as the teacher's just walking around, looking over a student's shoulder, making sure that the you know their solution looks like it's on the right track, nudging a student in the right direction. And that's where um, interaction, and this is one of the other components that I um, focus on in these shifts, is really prioritizing and planning and really designing for structures that allow students to show their work. That might be rethinking how to use a traditional discussion board, right, where you would think of a discussion board as, you know, respond to this reading with three sentences that describe this or a paragraph or whatnot. I've um, used discussion boards where a student would post an image of their work. It would be the type of thing where students do not see other students posting until they've posted their own. Um, And so once they respond to that discussion post, the first thing that comes up is my solution set. And now they have some opportunity to show their work I can take a look at their work and look at it a little more like holistically and make sure they're on the right track. And then they also have some solutions. So that's one example of like a protocol or structure um, that can happen in an online form, uh, an online format that would work to uh, replicate something that's so common in a traditional math classroom. All right. So, yeah. And what we can skip around, that was, again, interaction, prioritize and plan. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess... Are you finding when you, you've actually practiced this in real life that, I mean, is, is this doable? Is this as good as in the class or is it almost there? I mean, what, what's kind of your opinion on that? So the best model uh, that I have, I actually have taught a few of my uh, economics courses in online only formats and they happen to be AP courses. And being an, an economist myself, I did a little data uh, study on just my students, and I found no uh, difference in performance, uh, whether students took the course online or if they took it online. There's certainly some selectivity um, issues that would be in there if this was a official formal study, but I've seen it be successful. But more importantly, even going back to that first shift, and this is what I say whenever I talk to a teacher who's looking for where to start, I really like to uh, pare down of what is your number one objective. And again, I mentioned like, I want students to come away knowing functions in algebra two. It might be that, or it might be perseverance, or it might be um, being able to support a topic sentence with, uh, with details and specifics. Whatever that major piece is, make sure that uh, the work that you're doing honors that and can be uh, directed back to that purpose. And you may not get the same breath 
of teaching. You may not cover as many topics as you would um, in a lecture course, but uh, using some of these strategies, I've seen students at least retain and um, understand, comprehend, and work towards mastery, uh, mas mastery and competency um, in what you're really focusing on. And again, I think you sometimes need to sacrifice a little bit of breath for a lot of depth. Um, yeah. And and I, I think that's a really something that online learning really helps to support is really going into depth because students realize when they're just sitting, listening, taking some notes, uh, they realize that they could do that in a video and maybe look this topic up on YouTube or, or Google it. But when they're doing some research and really creating, uh, and that's where students get that sort of deeper learning, deeper understanding and deeper um, abilities to apply those concepts and, and skills. The next shift is uh, homework. And if I'm, if I'm understanding you right, you almost want to rebrand homework. Call it practice. So I, I learned this um, with when I taught uh, with Global Online Academy is there's no differentiation in that work between classwork and homework. It's just learning or it's just practice. So I think about um, a homework assignment and think about in that traditional math classroom that you described earlier, where you get, you know, you learn something from a lesson, do a couple example problems, and then go home and start doing some work on your own. I really think that that should be likened to a student doing a first draft in an English class, the first draft of a paper. Let's take this opportunity to call homework practice. Then we don't have to just give points away for homework completion. We can ask students to uh, reflect on their homework. I mentioned the example earlier of what, uh, students receiving a solution set after they've done their first draft. Why not quote unquote grade their revision process and say, well, what type of mistakes, like, could students acknowledge what type of mistakes they made? Were they subtracting one instead of adding one right in an algebra class? Were they, uh, or were they way off and using a completely different strategy? Uh, those are major differences. And uh, I think students can self-assess on that piece and work to make their problem set or homework, or again, what I call practice, like a final, you know, a final draft where they're working as, you know, revising and making this better and better. So we, you know, they're making their work better and better so that we realize that this is their best product and not just their first attempt um, that we're assessing. And I think that even not to jump too far um, or too much around, but assessment's obviously a big piece, but taking that same perspective with assessments, I want to make sure that at the end of my class, students understand, and not just a class one day, but at the end of my course, I want to make sure that students can do Here's A, B, C, D, E. You know, here's the, the six or seven ideas that I want students to be able to do. If they can do that the first week of October, or if they need until the last week of March to do that, if those are my objectives, um, I want to make sure that students have opportunities to demonstrate their mastery and move a little bit away from just that seat time model of, well, you've spent 45 minutes, four days a week in Algebra 2 class. Now you're ready for pre-calculus. Uh, I really think that there should be a, some competency and mastery components where students are able to revise and get some perspective on their work. So it's not just their first attempts, but they're actually working towards, uh, you know, having those competencies and being able to retain those fundamental ideas. Uh, and so, yeah, you were saying assessments or diversify approaches. Are you saying, are you suggesting what we should almost get points for understanding why we were wrong earlier? Sure. So 
I would I would uh, nudge away from get points, and I would nudge towards um, acknowledging growth. So I'm a big proponent of um, Cult of Pedagogy's uh, single point rubrics of working towards competency versus areas for growth. And if I want to, you know, move students towards that competency piece, um, and I, you know, I think that's a great a great area to do it, especially with uh, the homework slash practice or problem sets to work towards um, to work towards what their best product is. All right. And then lastly, of the shifts, you have feedback um, and you say, be strategic with your feedback. So I think this spring, when teachers moved to what I would call emergency remote learning. Right, exactly. That's, that was that's not, a good way to describe that it. Was not, yeah, right. Like that was not the best uh, first impression for online learning because teachers were preparing, executing, reflecting, taking care of themselves, mm-hmm. taking care of their families. And sometimes feedback took a way far back seat. And in an online setting, students need a lot of feedback. The good news is this is doable with a plan. So if you're trying to give, if, I, if I'm going back to that traditional math classroom and I'm trying to grade every single homework or every single problem on the homework, that's not uh, manageable. That's uh, not sustainable to give effective feedback uh, in that format. But I might ask students to write uh, or to record a video where they walk through how to complete a problem. And I would ask students to, you know, maybe revise that and make that the best of their work that that could be. And then that's what I want to give really good feedback on. If that's my plan, maybe I want to have eight problem homework problems, give the answers and say, if you got numbers one through four correct, move to this Zoom breakout room where you're going to focus on some extension problems. If you only got one or two of numbers one through four, right, come to this Zoom breakout room where uh, the teacher might be there helping to uh, support students in that context. That's a place where having a plan of what the work looks like um, and what the feedback's going to look like based on that work makes a lot of sense. So that's why I say feedback, be st- uh, strategic. So the other tactics that I would use here are automated feedback. I think about a student working at 1030 at night, going through a, uh, a math problem and they finish and they get an answer and they have their solution there and they're not sure if that's right or wrong. The next day they hand that in to their teacher. The teacher takes takes it. Maybe the next day they um, they grade it. Then the day after they give it back and the student looks, is that a check or a check plus? Is that a four or a five? And they don't realize that they needed that feedback in the moment when right. it's 1030 at night. So I think that's a great way to uh, utilize online learning and the tactic of automated uh, feedback because students are getting that feedback in the moment, not just this is right or this is wrong, but there might be a multiple choice problem or there might be a response that says, if you got a negative number, you likely did blank. Something along those lines where students are getting in the moment support. The great part of that is um, teachers can get that feedback too to see, oh, everyone seemed to not multiply by a negative number. Right. Okay. Well, that's going to inform our discussion. And that's where 
feedback can be broadcast out uh, to the entire class. It doesn't have to be just me giving Nick feedback on his homework. I can be saying, as a class, in general, we seem to struggle on these three pieces. We're going to focus here. Um, but then along with that, and this is obviously so important, um, and I loved uh, some of your earlier episodes um, with uh, Dave Stewart when he was talking about like humanizing connections mm -hmm. of giving personalized feedback, yeah. right? So that students know that you know them, uh, but you can't do that on every single assignment and every single problem. So you might say for five students this week, five students every week, I'm going to give really personalized feedback. And then next week, it'll be a different five. And next week, it'll be a different five. That's just, all that is, is just being really strategic and thoughtful about the feedback structure and not just sort of on a whim saying, I'm just going to grade everything, or I'm going to give you an eight out of 10 or, and, you know, and ask students to, to decipher what that feedback is, but really being strategic and saying, and being public with this too, letting students know, look, I need you to do 10 problems of practice, but here's the two that I, I need them to be your best because I'm going to give you feedback based on where I gauge you are. Uh, and that's where making a plan and whatever that looks like for your classroom and your students, making that sustainable and not just a, you know this one and done feedback piece. Let me ask you this. You talk about the automated feedback. Is there a tool yeah. in the world of yeah. math or economics or any course that you teach that, that you find as a good automated feedback tool that's maybe a third-party tool? So um, I, I don't have one that, that I consistently go to. Um, I actually, my, as a personal um, philosophy, I try to use as few of the tools as possible and think about how will this tool serve me. I'm fortunate that um, every class that I teach uses Canvas as a learning management system. So I'm able to put my own multiple choice problems in there or open-ended problems. I know that Wolfram Alpha and Desmos are good third-party tools that have some great uh, math resources. But, uh, you know, there's so many pieces and, and it probably is like what's actually going to serve your need of what you hope. Um, and I need students to just be able to submit multiple choice or be able to submit open-ended answers. And for me, my learning management system uh, works for that. I can imagine I've seen some students or some teachers utilize uh, in Google Classroom, utilize Google Forms to uh, give and receive feedback. You know, some of the if-thens, like if the answer is blank give this response or something along those lines um, and that's where i would urge teachers to think of all the tools that we're all being inundated with as um, a menu to choose from and not like a recipe right so you wouldn't go to a restaurant and say i'm going to try everything on the menu uh you would hopefully go and say okay i'll take one of these and one of those um, and there's certainly a lot of math pieces uh math tools popping up all over um, the internet to support teachers now, uh, Desmos is one that I've leaned on in the past um, and that I would personally vouch for, but I know that there are plenty more uh, that are fantastic as well. Adam, uh, thank you to you. And I think you said your your wife is an educator as well. So uh, kudos to both of you guys during this 
I don't want to say uh, challenging time. I mean, it, teachers really seem to be hitting it out of the park, but it just, it, I've seen so many videos of teachers teaching virtually, and it's so impressive what you guys are pulling off and the way you guys are on and interacting with, with students. Um, and then especially those teachers that work with younger students. I'm just, I'm just in awe uh, with how they pull that off as, in a virtual environment as well. So we really appreciate um, all the tips you're giving us, and hopefully somebody out there can uh, take this and run with it. Definitely. And a shout out to all the teachers that are you know, working hard. I hope that this is uh, provides some sort of help or a nudge to uh, whether it's get unstuck or to rethink or to just sort of start uh, a transition from, you know, a traditional math classroom to something that can be done uh, online and utilizing some of the resources that are at our disposal. I, I really hope that uh, that this is a great starting point for for a lot of teachers. So thanks for having me on, Nick. Thank you so much. And if anybody wants to um, keep up or uh, go back and look at everything we were just talking about, we will have a link in our uh, show notes. Adam, are you ready for today's pop quiz? Sure. I haven't studied. All right. Well, let's see. Let's see how you do. <laughs> First question. If students could only go to school for one subject, which subject should it be? Economics. Game theory. Yeah, you, I'm going to have to ask you to back that one up. Sure. So uh, game theory is about decision making and economics is about decision making and how individuals make decisions. There's no prerequisite. So I could start. Uh, I've already started with my four year old. <laughs> he doesn't great. even know it, but I could start with any <laughs> any grade and we can work up. What are we not teaching in school that we should be teaching? I'm biased, uh, but probably personal finance. Uh, what's the real life application? How, how do we actually make uh, good long term decisions for us? Uh, beyond just what we learn in, of like, you know, compound interest in, in a math class. What does every child deserve? Love. What's the biggest challenge for today's educators? Balancing personal expectations with the world's realities. <laughs> What's the best gift to give an educator? Time is the easy answer. So that might be the red herring uh, answer, I think support i think a nudge that says i like this and right so to sort of say this is a great start and let's think of what our next step might be which teacher changed your life coach walker uh he was a a poet and he was my football coach um in high school that is a a rare combination so you, you have to elaborate so what was it about that that changed your life well i was really fortunate um when i was a student in high school that I had many teacher advisor coaches and he was someone who was this uh, you know a large gritty man who had played college football and was a fantastic was a fantastic coach um, won co many coaching awards and tons of games yet then we'd go into the classroom and he was my English teacher um, and he was he showed that you don't have to just be one-dimensional that you can do a lot of different things and again he was a published poet and you know obviously held us to fantastically high standards and forced me to reevaluate who I was as a student which uh, helped me grow there but at the same time of course he was nurturing and uh, was always there and supporting of me and so that example is something that I continue to um, to go back to go back to and think about as yeah, a teacher it sounds like an incredible person uh, good stuff now last question pen or pencil pencil all right. Again, Adam Lavalley, we appreciate you taking the time to walk us through um, your shifts for uh, math teachers and, and moving all this lessons and online learning. Uh, it's just great stuff. And again, thanks for joining us on Class Dismissed. <laughs>
Thanks for having me on, Nick. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismiss. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. <laughs>